everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their stories, challenges, and strategies they use to scale their business. My guest today is Jon Edvald, founder and CEO of Garden.io, which automates the repetitive parts of your workflow to make developing for Kubernetes and clouds faster and easier. Garden provides production-like Kubernetes testing environments for integration tests, QA, and development. I'm obviously going to get a lot more detailed about what that actually means with Jon, but first, welcome Jon. Hi, thanks for having me. So, um, just before we get into the podcast itself, what I said was quite technical, and I'm sure there's a lot of technical people in my audience, but there may be quite a few that are not. So, could you tell me in a more simplified way, what Garden.io does, like if you would explain it to a non-technical CEO. Sure. Garden helps developers better test their backend applications. So pretty much any company today is a software company to some, to some degree. One of our first customers works on traffic management for the state of Berlin. And it's you know, not what we anticipated when we got started, but I think it just goes to show that any company has these concerns these days. And yeah, so we focus on the testing and development side of the whole software delivery lifecycle. And that serves to improve software quality, reduce any issues that come up after you deploy your software, and, and generally just improve productivity. So developers don't need to spend as much time doing kind of the plumbing work, which is mm. everything aside from the specifics of your company and what you are trying to solve. Mm. Developers, backend developers, any developers really, they spend a lot of time kind of resolving the same problems that have been solved over and over again by teams of all different kinds of size and sizes. So we're trying to make some helpful abstractions and tools so that you can just focus on what's important to your business. Right. Okay, got it. So I wanted to start off by actually talking a little bit about how you came to start Garden.io. I looked at your profile, you were VP of engineering, so a very technical person, most of your career, and you've gone from doing that to becoming an entrepreneur and starting Garden.io. And I was wondering if you could take a few minutes to talk about how you got to this point. What made you start Garden.io? Sure. Yeah, I can do a, kind of a fast forward through my, my career. There's a, just a few stops there. So, we, and you're right, I've been uh, coding in some respects since I was a kid. I remember first punching in some basic on my dad's Commodore 64 when I was six. I did not understand it, so I wasn't like a prodigy or anything. I just I had an early interest in it. And when I started to study, I, I studied software engineering. My friends and I, we started my first startup. So, and there I was CTO which was still mostly a technical role. And when we sold, sold my previous company to the US, to a company then called Jive Software, I came into a management position there and learned a lot, both, both in terms of the importance of doing that well to make other people successful, as opposed to just being a, a good programmer, individual contributor. So I kind of stuck to that track since. I think that's yeah. a really important skill and if we're going to have more and more entrepreneurs and startups in Europe, technical people starting companies is a really important source of startups. So I was wondering if you could talk about how do you manage to balance kind of your desire to remain technical 
and also have to now think about business, management, and people. And what advice would you give to other technical people that might be thinking or on the fence about starting a company? Well, so I would first say it's hard, like wearing all these different hats. It's not easy. And, you know, I I have to kind of ground myself and find some Zen all the time. So Garden started by four engineers in kind of different respects. And even our COO, who mostly does like biz dev and sales, he has a technical background as well. I think probably the best advice I can give is to create a strong team. Don't try to do everything yourself and don't think you can. Building a strong, ideally diverse team where three Icelandic guys and a, and a Dutch guy all kind of you know, and they're roughly the same. I'm, I'm the oldest, remarkably. But we have different skill sets. We have different viewpoints. And that's, that's really the most important thing and has been the most important thing is to have a diversity of viewpoints and, yeah, and interests. Because I, I don't think any of the other three would be good at doing operational stuff. I would be terrible at it. So it's, it's really wonderful to have Buzz, my co-founder, who is able to do that and, and actually enjoys it. And then our CTO, really good at the kind of day-to-day management and kind of which tends to be a VP of engineering skill set in a larger organization, but uh, we're just a small team and we spread the loads. I, I think that's a good way to solve for not being necessarily experienced or naturally good at all the different roles that a CEO has to serve. Right, right. Okay. Well, I'll ask more questions about the company itself, but... I wanted to actually focus a lot of our conversation on where software development is and how it's changed since you started. I think it has become more collaborative and distributed. I think both that's both a reflection of technologies that have emerged. And those technologies also emerge because of an increased need for a wider collaboration because, you know, the the scope and complexity of software has increased so much. You, you don't so much create these like single bespoke applications. You create these systems that um, all have to talk to each other. And just the breadth of software that any company needs to have in order to function well has increased. And, and that means your systems need to be distributed to handle scale in all manner of different ways. I, I, I remember when we ran... Uh, back at my previous startup, we ran servers out of a back room and just installed a fan and thankfully had good good internet connection. And that's kind of cloud was pretty nascent at the time. Now, basically any any backend software, especially, and really any any software is distributed. And also, I mean, the world is also coming becoming much more globalized and remote. So that pushes the need for uh, better collaboration and the way you create software reflects that a lot. We don't make microservices just because we can. It's actually pretty expensive. It has an overhead, mm-hmm. but it, it solves a lot of problems in terms of how you scale with respect to uh, users and data and, and developers, importantly. And uh, another important factor is how quickly you can deliver software. Mm. Um, you're, you're expected to, you know, these concepts like continuous integration, continuous delivery, didn't really hear that so much back back in 2007 when I started my other company. Um, and even though we did kind of sort of the, some of the same things with testing, but but now you you need to be able to roll out your changes um, ideally like very quickly, like within a day from when you create them. Usually, it's not quite that. It's 
you know, ranges from an hour to uh, weeks. But it's it's a far cry from like when I was at Jive, we did these quarterly releases and that was painful to uh, maintain and painful to orchestrate and created a lot of collaboration blockers. And, and mm. so the whole, it didn't exactly flow in, in, in any sort of a natural way. You had these cumbersome release management and you actually had, had release management teams and all kinds of things that were necess- necessitated just by the fact that we had this monolithic architecture. Hmm. Interesting. I know that Garden has an open source component mm-hmm. of your offering. What is the reason that a lot of companies have an open source? And when does it make sense to have an open source as an offering? I think in our particular space, call it the DevOps space, it's pretty much table stakes at this point. I think both customers and the developers and end users, they, they have that expectation now. The exceptions may be when you're basically creating something that you deliver as a service and you don't actually have to interact directly with, like, you know, we distribute Garden as a, as a thing that you install and you use it, whether it's on your developer's laptops or in your testing infrastructure. And for anything like that, I think it would be a hard sell to make it closed source. And also we would basically lose a lot of engagement with the user community. Like we, we have an increasingly steady stream of contributions from our users, you know, want to fix a small thing, add a small feature. And for them both to be able to look at the code and understand how it works and also just to be able to tweak it to their needs is very important. So are you saying that if you're selling to DevOps, you kind of need to have an open source offering these days? Yeah, I think I think that's fair to say. Which is not to say that that's the, like that's not the only reason for doing it. I think people just kind of realized all the benefits of doing things in an open source way, and these things that become intertwined with the infrastructure of a, of a company, you want to have control. You like you know say mm. if the company that you were buying the product from or or whose product you've been using, you know, which is obviously you know, candidly a risk factor with any, any startup, it might not, might cease to exist or might get acquired and then priorities change. I think it's important for the customer to retain some control mm-hmm. um, and just the power of the community that you can build around it. I think that's been evident with the whole CNCF community. Kubernetes is a huge push in that direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think uh, that's generally seems something seems to be something that companies, uh, as in customers, think is very important. And it's also more likely to push an ecosystem and push the development of these technologies faster. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So you obviously sell directly to the DevOps teams within companies. How do you go from being open source to getting money for what you're developing? That's a common headache. And it's something that we have been working out over time. And we're really only, only now starting, starting our commercial efforts. We've been doing this uh, since the beginning of 2018. And we decided early on that we wanted to be a product company, a commercial product company with an open core, which is a pretty common model where you draw the kind of dotted line between what's in the open core and what's in a commercial solution is, is sometimes a little bit tricky. We have the benefit of having kind of goods and bad examples from the industry from before 
So we conceptually decided on a solution to that pretty early. Basically, we have the open core, which is uh, what the customer needs to uh, use to build things around themselves. And the service component is something that is a, is kind of a separate product that just uses the open core. So it's not a commercial version of the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's purely an addition on top. And we managed to make a fairly elegant line where anything that needs to run persistently as a service, whether that's within your infrastructure or, or on our infrastructure, that's the commercial bit. And of course, like the uh, support we provide, onboarding assistance and all kinds of things that we kind of lump in with that, which actually some of our early deals are only about um, our support. Mm -hmm. The documentation and support and the training also? Training, yes. And kind of providing guidance on implementation and architecture and that sort of a thing. But, you know, we're we're just getting started. We'll, We'll take revenue where we can get it. And have you tried to sell primarily in in Europe, in Germany? Like where are your initial customers coming from? We're starting, so our leads are coming from a mix of US and Europe. We've hired a really good person who has a strong network here in the European enterprise space. And, and he's been able to both help us on the pitch for the product, the messaging, and and also open all the right doors so we can, we can be pretty effective about it. And then once you kind of find the patterns and you have something that's repeatable, you can then start to hire a little bit further away. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, the, it's, it's, it's helpful to be close, if not geographically, kind of culturally to start. Yep. And then uh, we'll probably make the next step over to the East Coast of the U.S., not just because of time zones, but also because that's our, the types of companies that are attracted to Garden tend to be there more so than the West Coast. Okay. Uh, now I was going to ask if selling to DevOps was different between US and Europe. I believe it is. I think there may also be a distinction between you know Silicon Valley and the rest of the US, mm. where the Valley companies are often very technically proficient and, mm. and confident and like to build things themselves, which is fine. They, you know, they are welcome to use our open source or our open core to, to build on top of. And, and some of them already do that. But they, and this is something that I've gathered from other companies selling to developers in, in that area, is that they may not be the best customers for kind of an enterprise B2B software company. But the rest of the U.S. definitely seems seems willing to purchase solutions to their problems and, and much the same in Europe. Okay. So, you know, I think one of the challenges I would have, uh, I'm, co- I'm coming from a go-to-market background, is around pricing. Because you have a huge part that's open source and then you're selling to DevOps that's used to either building things on their own or using open source. How did you figure out the pricing for your commercial offer? Well, did is probably an overstatement. That's, it's very much a work in progress. And I think, I think it will be for a while. Not, not until we have at least like tens of uh, like perpetual deals with customers. We've at least made some progress on what the units are. Mm-hmm. So we narrowed it down, down to a few things, but we basically settled on the number of projects and the number of developers. Okay. And, and it kind, kind of has to be the both too, because different companies will scale on those dimensions in very different ways. And what, you know, how much it is per each of these units is we kind of figured out what's, what's our start, 
like so we know what our minimum deal size is and how much we should include in that that basically our minimum deal is for a single team to use the product successfully and then we're going to see how we're able to scale that but no pricing is not easy. Yes. <laughs> it's going to be an active topic for a while. Yes, yes. So you've just raised seed stage of funding, right? Yeah, we raised two rounds. We managed to raise a little over a million euros to just out of the gate, like three months in when we started in 2018, which was great. Okay. Yeah, um, that's great. Yeah, Great angel investors on board. So we have the CEO of Datadog, CTO of Eventbrite, CEO of GitHub, uh, a former CTO of Microsoft, uh, a couple of people from the investment side as well. And I think that really kind of helped kick things off. And we got a local VC who was early on board and excited about what we were doing. So yeah, that, that was actually, that was, that was fantastic. Uh, what better than I expected. And then we raised a second, slightly larger, larger round in October. So, Which is I good mean, timing, just before COVID. <laughs> yeah. So I'm thinking about the audience for this podcast, which is really other startups. And I'm sure there are quite a few that are uh, pre-seed or pre-funding and would love to hear, how did you go about raising that first million dollars? What was your strategy? What do you think led to the success of you closing that million round funding? I think a couple of key things. One is that I, I had previously sold a company. I think that really helps. When you come to an investor, they have a few variables that they're looking at. But the two most important ones, to simplify a bit, are you have the size of the opportunity. So you have to explain and sell that. And the probability of success. And the probability of success, you know, that having done this before will increase that probability. So the multiple between these two, two factors uh, is going to start to look better. And so that, I, I think that really helped in my case. Okay. And, and the second part uh, I would say is go and network. And I don't mean just go to startup accelerators and kind of hobnob between a bunch of other startups who are also trying to find money. That can be a useful act- activity in some respect, but it's not really a good way to get at investors. Mm-hmm. I think find somebody you know, who can vouch for you and introduce you to an investor Mm. Um, and you will be received completely differently than you know in a big room with a bunch of bunch of people quote unquote asking for money so and and I think that's both important in terms of in perception and and I think investors like to see you be able to do that because how are you otherwise going to sell to your prospective customers so yeah, which is not to rail on like, you know, uh, startup accelerators. I, I think some of them are good. Some of them are not so good. All of them mean well, I believe. <laughs> and if you can use one of those to get to like your kind of first steps into a network, that's, that's helpful. That's pretty much what I did. I got some good introductions, got first angel investor on board, and that got the ball rolling. Got it. Got it. I think that's really good advice, John. So now you have this funding after your first three months, which I think is record timing to get to raise so much money. That's great. Congratulations. How did you determine how to focus? Because one of the things as a startup that is hard to do is focus. Actually, it didn't do it that well. That's Fair probably enough. As, as good a lesson as like, oh, yeah, everything went swimmingly. It did not. So, I mean, at that point, we just needed to get from a kind of a crummy prototype to something that actually works. And, and so the first year was just generally focused on that. 
at the end of 2018, things start to get a little bit hazy in terms of what are the clear next steps. A couple of failures early on, for example, we had kind of an unclear idea of how we wanted to grow the company just in terms of people and which sorts of people we needed for the next steps. And we just kind of tried something and it was sometimes successful, sometimes not. And going through that back and forth and hiring somebody, having to let them go to like sometimes just no fault of their own, just because we kind of miscalculated what we actually needed or people leaving for that reason. That's, that causes a strain on a company. So I think hire very carefully uh, because it's it's so easy to think like, oh yeah, we have a million in the bank. Like let's, let's go, you know, accelerate. Now I think um, what I would suggest to myself back then would be start very early talking to your prospective customers and don't try and sell them anything just yet. Just have interviews with them, talk about their problems, ask a set of pointed questions that you can repeat and you can kind of conversationally ask them. Do that for tens of tens of companies or, or people that you know or trust and really try and understand what it is that you are working on because you most likely have too broad an idea of the problems that you're trying mm-hmm. to solve. Mm-hmm. Trying to fi- figure out the focus will allow you to run much faster. We try to you know, boil the ocean as the word. We first thought that the whole area of developer experience around microservices and Kubernetes was narrow enough. It is nowhere near narrow enough. So we've been working hard to narrow our focus just in terms of product and market and everything. So spend some time early on to try and do that. I mean, even better if you could do it ahead of fundraising. That would be even smarter, but you may not be able to do that mm. without funding. But yeah, so that, that's, that's advice I would give to myself from a couple of years ago. Okay. Okay. I think that's good advice. So one of the things I wanted to also ask about, I, I see you, you're A-technical, but you seem relatively young and you're doing this startup. Where do you go for mentorship? Any advice on developing how to get advice and get coaching as you build your company? Yeah. Yeah, I've tried a few different things, actually. So I, I mentioned earlier, I have some uh, really good angel investors, and they've been really helpful in this regard. I can call on them when I need advice on whatever they are good at, uh, which tends to be different sets of specific things. Uh, and some of them are just like nice to talk to, especially when things are not going smoothly, and they won't always go smoothly. So it's important to have these people around so for us, yeah, angel investors, they have been super helpful in this regard and actually our institutional investors as well. And for a while, I, I did coaching as well, was connected to somebody who was really good at that and did that on a temporary basis, partly because it was kind of pricey, but super nice and helpful. It helped me frame my own thoughts, mm-hmm. which is different from a mentor who you can have, who will just tell you his opinion, maybe right. uh, he or she. And then I'm fortunate to have former co-founders who I can talk to, other CTOs and, and, and just basically people, friends who are sometimes further along in this journey than I am. So would you recommend that someone also get like a professional coach, which you said you tried and was expensive, but you, you had for a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I, I think for that, it's really good to have a sense of something that you want to address so that you can keep that time focused. Actually, a good coach will also prompt you for this. Okay. The last question I wanted to 
to talk about with you was around the current pandemic and remote working. Like you said, you were lucky that you raised money at the right time, but the world has changed significantly, both in terms of the way you work as a company, as well as the customers that you're trying to get, your prospects and your target market. What are some of the biggest challenges that you've encountered and what are some of the areas where you've actually been able to see some success in this um, current situation? Yeah, so I think uh, for sure there have been some challenges, but as you mentioned, we've been kind of lucky. We were lucky with the timing of our fundraising. We're lucky in the time, kind of the life cycle of the company because when, when we suddenly have to work remotely, we're a, a software company, so that kind of, you know, that isn't the most difficult transition for the type of company that we are. We needed to learn some new practices and we needed to get better at collaborating remotely. Mm-hmm. But we found that that was pretty quickly, fairly successful for us. And, and the fact that we were pretty much in this product development stage where we didn't really have to worry about our revenue dropping, the businesses we're in seems to be holding up pretty well. Budgets aren't being cut left and right, at least not yet. So we haven't had like any dramatic challenges, unlike some other companies that I've seen. Like if you're even in the same space, if you're doing more consulting work, that may be on the chopping block from your customer's perspective. So that can be pretty, pretty dramatic. And maybe like one unexpected benefit was I mentioned earlier having these conversations, whether they're sales conversations or just general conversations with your prospective customers. There was at least a time there and it still kind of feels this way where people will give you a little bit more time. They will give you a bigger slice of time and, and maybe be kind of more transparent than working from the office where everything is more busy and hectic. And another thing that we... We started to realize because we're making software for developers, it seemed like a foregone conclusion that we would have to quickly build a presence or even move a part of the team to Silicon Valley. That was just kind of taken as a given. Uh, We didn't question it until now because I think now we don't really see a strong reason to go there. When everything's remote and globalized, we can work from wherever is convenient for us. And the general attitudes to that are changing a lot. And the kind of, I want to say, like cultural hegemony that Silicon Valley holds in this particular sector is loosening up a little bit. So if you want to work from Berlin, you can do that. If you want to work from a cute little villa in the, somewhere, somewhere down south in Spain, you can, you can do that as long as right. you have a respectable internet. And the expectation to be localized to a certain environment has loosened up a lot, both mm-hmm. from the uh, perspective of a customer and from investors as well. Right. So I know that you've just launched your product. So tell us a little bit about what the offering is or what the product does and for whom it is. Sure. So yeah, I mentioned earlier, like we've been kind of grappling this, you know, what's, what's open source and what's commercial. And we're basically launching a new commercial product on top of our open core. Which, which is a service that you can deploy within your own infrastructure or you can ask us to run it for you that is kind of a nexus for you and that helps you manage all the uh, testing environments and preview environments and all the configuration needed for your development team to work together on a product. So developers can easily use it to 
orchestrate setting up new environments. They can store all the configuration in there. You can have Garden automatically spin up environments for testing and run your tests for you based on you know when you push push your code to Git. And it's basically expanding on the same idea that the open core is and heavily uses the open core and they're all tightly interconnected. And yeah, it's it's an exciting time. We're kind of going from hypothetical to actually real. It's it's exciting and it's, it's you know it's 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 slightly stressful at the same time. But I'm really pleased with it. I think you know the launch is both announcing a new commercial product, but also uh, a slight adjustment to our messaging. We're we're kind of doubling down on the testing side of side of the story, and as, you know, the, the development workflows can mean a lot of different things. You you type in your code, and you want things to be built and deployed as quickly as possible, and we do help with that. But we saw a gap in the market for solutions that really help specifically with how you test these cloud native applications. Mm. And test testing means different things today. Like when you have a cloud-native application, you need to test your configuration. You need to make sure services can talk to each other. You need to make sure the right thing happens when service A talks to service B and so on and so forth. And we are focusing more and more on that. And this, this new product is basically a continuation of that effort. Has there been any sort of quantification of value done if someone uses your product in terms of savings and time or anything like that? So we are working on some case studies. We like anecdotally, we, we get these numbers, like our testing pipeline is like 70% faster. I think basically the time spent waiting for builds, deployments, and tests, and for CI pipelines to conclude, that's going to reduce dramatically as, as well as your ability to just spin up an environment to test of one specific thing, but still to do that in a fast and efficient manner. All right. So almost at the end of the show, I wanted to take a few minutes to ask you just some rapid fire questions. So they're just uh, fun questions so the audience can get to know you better. So Jan, are you ready? Sure. Why not? <laughs> What's your favorite city? My favorite city? In Europe. I, in Europe. I, I like Berlin. Berlin. Berlin has been really good to me and I love living here. But one of the things I like about Europe is all the different cities and all the different characteristics that they have. I went to Barcelona the other day, really enjoy going there. I like the mainland because it offers all these different types of cities and you can try different things. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> Any recommendations for books that you've read that really you know stayed with you? So I'm just starting um, starting on a book actually, which I, I think the premise of it is very interesting. I, I, I can't say yet if it's going to be good. It's called Inventing the Future. And I suppose it's rather a political thing. It discusses the a post-capitalist world. And I'm just very generally very interested in how humanity is adjusting to uh, rapid increases in technological development, how our perception of time and is changing, how... We need to slow down to be able to work with all the all the rapid advancements. Maybe we need to trim down our work week. Not to get all political, but I, I think that's a generally very interesting topic that I'm taking to heart. Okay, great. Any recommendation for a restaurant in Berlin, since you said Berlin was your favorite? I know there are tons, but any one that you like frequently visiting? Well, so I started to miss our like kind of quote unquote cafeteria across the street from our office, which is this like cheap Vietnamese place called Hami. You get five euros and you get a nice curry. 
Um, oh. But I've been to so many fantastic restaurants here. One is called Cookies Cream, which is this very interesting vegetarian restaurant. There's a lot of good vegetarian restaurants. I'm not strictly vegetarian, but I'm kind of adjusting my diet that way. And Berlin is great for that. Lots of, lots of good options. Really? Oh, that's good to know. Well, Dawn, yeah. thank you so much for um, coming on the show. I think DevOps and Kubernetes are all really hot topics. I, I know it's something that a lot of companies are, are already doing. So hopefully they found what you're doing interesting. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for being on my show. Thank you for having me.